Psalm 2. Before we get started, allow me to uh, invite you back this afternoon at 5. Uh, this will be our monthly Q&A night. And the question this evening that the questioner themselves admitted was an off-the-wall question uh, that is about the Lord's Supper, but I have found that I like the off-the-wall questions because often it makes us to re-examine uh, the fundamentals of the thing that we're talking about. And so an off-the-wall question about the Lord's Supper um, invites us to come and evaluate some of the basics of why we do what we do and what, what does it mean that we do the Lord's Supper that the way that we do. So come back this afternoon at 5, and we'll have good Q&A night, hopefully. Psalm 2 begins with me in verse 1. <clears throat> the psalmist begins with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's a handful of psalms, I think, I found at least myself, I need to revisit from time to time. And as an extension of that, sometimes I think we need to revisit from time to time. And in particular, I find that the psalms we need to be reminded of are the ones that remind us that God is God. And remind us of the dimensions of what that confession means, that there exists God. Psalm 2 is one of those. It's a psalm that reassures us of God's sovereignty uh, in a world gone mad, uh, in a world full of invasions and war, as is on the news recently, in a world full of tyrants and terrorists, in a world full of chaos and disorder. This psalm reminds us who God is, who the real king is, and what God will do with all those who deny or act like they are the real king. So the Christians in Acts chapter 4 actually attributed this psalm to David. Um, It was originally written to and about the little nation Israel. And as we think about Israel in the ancient world, I think we need to put Israel in perspective. Um, Israel as a nation is invaded and passed around by different empires throughout the centuries. Um, there's Sennacherib of Assyria, then there's Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, then there's Cyrus of Persia, Alexander the the Great of Greece comes marching through, then the seizures of Rome. All these great kings and empires, they treat Israel like a doormat in history, and they all overshadow Israel in the pages of history. Um, Even at the height of Israel's power under Kings David and Solomon, um, Israel was a tiny little nation of really little consequence on the world stage. We also need to say that evaluation of Israel is decidedly secular. Because God reminds his people in this psalm that you won't find out who's really in charge of the world by reading the the news headlines. 
Because the news will only tell you about Sennacherib or Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus or Alexander or Caesar or their modern equivalents, as if these are the real powers. But really what this psalm reminds us is who is really in charge of the world. That's what this psalm is about. And when we get this reminder of who's really in charge of the world, kings and nations get humbled. And God's people, living in perhaps powerless exile, God's people are bolstered. Now, one of the things I want to do as we talk through this psalm is really take note of how it's used in the New Testament because it appears in the New Testament quite often. Uh, And there's a sense in which this psalm sort of spills over the banks. It's a good way of describing it. The psalm spills out over the banks. So it's originally about David, and it's about Israel and David's day. I think that's the first way to think about it. How does this psalm apply to the situation on the ground when it was written? It had something to say to those people. So the question is, what did it say? And yet, at the same time, we can do that exercise, but at the same time, there are descriptions here about a king that no earthly king can live up to, not even David. For example, verse 8, Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your, your possession. See, this psalm points to an even greater king than David, anointed by God. One who the ends of the earth are his possession. When the apostles read this psalm, who they saw was Jesus sitting on his throne. And when we read this psalm, we need to see Jesus sitting on his throne in our day with all authority in heaven and on earth. It's a psalm about God's true anointed king who is the real ruler, who is unfazed by rebels and counterfeits, and all submission and worship is due to this king, the real one. This psalm is about the real king who's really in charge of the world. So let's talk through the message of this psalm and try to bring it, bring it home to our, to our own lives. So number one, who's really in charge of the world? The, the opening of the psalm says that the kings of the earth foolishly think they are. The kings of the earth foolishly think they are. So before telling us who is in charge, the psalm opens with the people who think they're in charge. Verse 1 again. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so we have here a sort of conspiracy of of kings and rulers who meet and conspire for the purpose of casting off the bonds of God and his anointed. Now, you might initially get the impression that these kings and these rulers are in chains. They're in, in chains here. Um that they're something like captives, they're in prison, um, but that's really not the image. Um, Most scholars agree the idea of verse 3 is not that they're imprisoned or something. The idea is that they are under a yoke. They're they're in a harness, that they're being used. They're not being confined, they're being worked. The image is that they sense they have an owner. They sense they have someone who's trying to use them for his purposes, And they feel like a yoke. They feel the yoke like an ox. They feel a harness like a horse. They have a sense there is an even greater power over them, a creator over them, a real ruler over them. But instead of submitting to his rule, they rage against it. And they say, I want no part of that. I want to do what I want, not what he wants. It's pride and self-will. They don't want to submit to anyone. They want to say, I am my own. That's a phrase I've gotten from a, a guy named George MacDonald. George MacDonald was a Scottish writer who was one of the favorites of C.S. Lewis. But he said this memorable line. He said, the one principle of hell is this, I am my own. He says, the one unifying principle of hell is this, I am my own. 
Here's what he's getting at. You know, there's a lot of different sins. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to rebel against God. Um, there, there will be a great diversity in hell. There will be people from all nationalities and races and genders who've been guilty of, of every, every which sin. They will not have all been guilty in the exact same way. So what do they have in common? Well, basically this. They will have all said in their lives, I am my own. I'm in charge of my life. I do what I want, not what God wants. No one tells me what to do. I will not submit to God or his anointed. That's the idea of verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I am in charge. I'm in charge of me, and I'm in charge of the world. I'm God, not you. So as we think about how these words would have applied to David in his day, I think it's pretty obvious what, what these would have meant. In 1 Samuel 16, God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem for this reason. He said, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And when Jesse's youngest son, David, is brought in from the field, Samuel, he literally anoints him with oil. David becomes God's anointed from that day. It's a royal ceremony where the prophet singles out the man God chooses as king. So God has his anointed with David. So what happens next? How does the story go from there? Does everyone immediately submit themselves to God's anointed? Does everyone say, God has expressed his will and now we will follow him. We will follow God's anointed king. No, that's not what happens. Saul grows jealous. Saul tries to kill David. When Saul died, Saul's general Abner sets up a rival kingdom in the north because he doesn't think David should be king. Later, David's son Absalom campaigns against his dad, even forcing David into exile. For a time, he rages against God's anointed. Another man named Sheba starts a rebellion. In 2 Samuel 20, he says, We have no portion with David. We have no inheritance to the son of Jesse. Can we begin to understand how this psalm would have been meaningful in David's day? People plotting. Kings and rulers conspiring against the Lord's anointed. They're saying, how can we break his yoke over us? How can we do what we want instead of what God's anointed wants? But, but that's not, that doesn't exhaust the meaning of this psalm. Hold your place in Psalm 2. Go with me to Acts 4. We'll be back in Acts 4 again by the end of the sermon. Acts chapter 4. Because the disciples in the New Testament saw this dynamic playing out in their own day. About the kings of earth raging against the Lord and his anointing. So in Acts 4, we're just two chapters uh, since Acts 2. With the amazing signs, with the mass conversion. But by chapter 4... That amazing sign that the mass conversion has turned into opposition and persecution. Peter and John are in prison. Their fates are uncertain. And when they're released, the church gathers together for a prayer meeting and they thank God for the release of Peter and John. They pray for boldness in the face of persecution. But they do all of this with Psalm 2 on their lips. Notice here, this is verse 24. Acts 4 and verse 24. Uh, And when they heard it, that is, they heard of the release of Peter and John, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, see if these words sound familiar, "Why why do the Gentiles rage or the nations rage or the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then in verse 27, after quoting from Psalm 2, they apply those words to their day. 
Verse 27. For truly in this city, in Jerusalem, were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. You see what they do? They identify Jesus as the Lord's anointed in the psalm. They equate Herod and Pilate with the kings and rulers raging against the Lord's anointed. And they, they parallel the crowd, chanting crucify him to the nations and the peoples who go along with this. See, this psalm is describing a dynamic that has played itself out over and over again in David's day and Jesus' day and our day. God anoints a king. God says, this is my man. Do what he says. And what should happen next is that every knee should bow. Every knee should obey. But that never happens. The nations rage. The kings and rulers conspire. Why? Because they don't want a king. They don't want this king at least. They want to be their own. They want to run their own lives. Or at least if they have a king, they want a king who makes promises, not demands. They want a king who says, do what you want. Let's listen to you, not do what, do what God says. And so when Jesus shows up, everyone who wanted to be their own rages against him. And so the psalm opens by describing that dynamic. But do you know what happens as the nations rage against God, as they're proudly declaring themselves as their own, as there's this conspiracy among the kings of earth to throw off the shackles of this God? Here's what happens next in the psalm. God laughs and he anoints his own king. This is verse 4. Psalm 2 and verse 4. God's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. <clears throat> then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I heard a story once I think is a good illustration of, of, of the point here. Um, story, there was a story about a black man in the Jim Crow South who was getting on a city bus. And he was standing near the middle of the bus holding onto the rail. And a young white kid got on the bus and he came up to the man and he elbowed him out of the way. And he said, you're in my spot. And so he moved to a different spot. And then a minute later, he moved, the little boy moved, and he elbowed the man again. And he said, you're in my spot. And so the man silently moved to a different spot. He just was absorbing the abuse of the humiliation. This happened several more times on the ride. And each time the man just let himself be pushed aside. And so finally the bus stopped and the man got off at his stop. But as he got off the bus, he silently handed the boy, the boy his business card. And on his business card it said, Joe Lewis, heavyweight champion of the world. See, the point is, who's got the real power in that interaction? Is it the person doing the abusing or the person allowing the abuse, absorbing it? Who's got the real power in that dynamic? See, when you've got real power, you're secure enough with it to let those who think they have it continue to think it for a minute or two. You can afford to sit back and let yourself get pushed around and make yourself look small and humiliated because you know at any moment, if you want to assert yourself, you can. And so the piddly little attempts at pe of peons to exercise power, the person who actually has it can just sit back and laugh at it. Joe Lewis isn't threatened by a little boy. And by the same token, God isn't threatened by the kings and rulers of the nations as they plot and rage against him. So what does he do in verse 4? He who sits in the heavens, he laughs at them. He holds them in derision. 
even if all the kings and rulers and nations got together and worked for the common purpose of throwing off God's yoke and doing exactly the opposite of God, what God would have them do, they might look like they're having success for a while, but God's not the least bit threatened. But then in the psalm, at a certain point, God stops laughing. He stops laughing at the little Napoleons conspiring together. And he speaks in a way that terrifies them and puts them on notice. Verse, verse 5, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The all-powerful God has anointed his own king. The anointed will be the king, whether you wanted him to be or not. And he says he has been installed on Zion. Now, Zion is the main hill on which Jerusalem sits, and it's often just another name for Jerusalem. Now, as we think about how this applies in David's day, when David, before David conquered this city, before the time of David, Israel did not possess the city of Jerusalem. It was possessed by, by Gentiles. It was inhabited by a group of people named the Jebusites. David had to conquer the city and take the hill, Zion. And there is a sense in which, in 2 Samuel 5, when that event happens, this psalm is happening. Right? That's when verse 6 literally happens. David has opposition from these other groups, from these Philistines, from the Jebusites, even from his own people. The nations are raging against God's anointing. But at a certain point, God says, it's time for me to assert my rule and set up my king. And so 2 Samuel 5 and verse 2, you shall be my shepherd of my people. You shall be prince over Israel, he says. And then it says, David took the stronghold of Zion. 2 Samuel 5 and verse 7. And then after the capture of Jerusalem, the text says, David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. God laughed at the plots of men. He then said, here's what I'm going to do. And then he did it. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. But of course, Zion comes to mean something more than just the literal hill Jerusalem sits on in the Bible. And the king who was set on Zion came to refer to even one greater than David. God said of this future king to David, he said, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So hold your place again in Acts 2 and go, sorry, in Psalm 2 and turn to Acts 4. Take your mind back to Acts 4 again, where we just were. The church is praying this psalm. Peter and John have been released from prison. They quote from this psalm. They identify Jesus as God's anointed. Herod and Pilate as the kings and rulers, the crowd chain and crucify him as the nations and the peoples. But they're not just thinking about the first three verses of the psalm where everyone is against God. They keep thinking about how God anoints his king despite the rage and the plots of the nations. They're still thinking in the storyline of this psalm. So this is Acts 4 and verse 27, picking up where we left off. They've just quoted from Psalm 2. They say, Truly in the city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Then this is verse 28. Here's what they were doing when they were conspiring against the Lord and his anointed. Here's what they were actually doing. Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they say something remarkable. All the plotting rulers, all, doing all they can to thwart God's plan, you know what they were actually doing in verse 28? 
exactly what your hand and your plan predestined to take place. God laughs at them, and then he uses all their rebellious plots, and he turns them to do his own will after all. You want to kill my son? Guess what? That was the plan. See, God didn't just let people push him around a little bit, like Joe Lewis let the little boy push him around. God did something even more than that. He let people kill him. He said, you want to push me around? Okay. But it's the one who actually has power that can absorb that, not the one who dishes it out. And after Jesus was raised from the dead, it was as if he handed his crucifiers his business card that said, Jesus Christ, God's anointed, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Here's who I really am. You thought you had power over me for a minute, but let me tell you who I really am. So the kings of earth conspire, and God says, very funny, let me show you who the real king is. In verse 7, God continues the storyline. He has anointed his king. He has installed him on Zion. And in verse 7, he speaks to him. He commissions him. He gives him his marching orders, and he sort of decrees about three things. Here's, here's what you're going to do. So this is Psalm 2 again. Psalm 2 and verse 7. <clears throat> the first thing God says about his anointed is that I love you. The, the, God loves this anointed king like a son. Verse 7 He says, I will tell tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, so this is God speaking to his anointed, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So God speaks to his king now, who is enthroned on Zion, and he addresses him as a son. Remember again, David's writing. David's speaking first about himself. I think it's important to say, you know, Jews who read that, phrase, Jews in David's day who read that phrase, you are my son, they're not thinking about the virgin birth of the Messiah here. They don't know anything about that. God did love David with a fervent love that a father has for a son. It was as if God himself beget David. That's the care God had for David. And yet at the same time, with David, that can only be a metaphor. David was literally begotten by Jesse, not God himself. It can only be literally true of one person. Which is why the New Testament authors quote verse 7 in particular a number of times as proof of Jesus' divine origin. In Acts 13, Paul's preaching in a synagogue in Antioch. And he's showing the Jews Jesus really is the Son of God raised from the dead. This is what he says in Acts 13 and verse 32. We bring the good news of what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Here's proof, Jesus is God's son. He's been raised, he testified to this, just as Psalm 2 said. Or in the beginning of the book of Hebrews, the supremacy of Jesus is being declared. Jesus is greater than the angels, greater than all. And then he says in Hebrews 1 and verse 5, After all, to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? He's quoting Psalm 2 and verse 7. The answer is, of course, no one. He never said that to an angel. No angel has been begotten of God like a son. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. And so God speaks to his anointed in verse 7. He says, I love you like a son. In verse 8, he says, I put the world at your feet. This is what he says to his anointed. Verse 8, ask of me, he invites him. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." So notice, the very same nations that are raging against God's anointed in verse 1 are put under the authority of this anointed in verse 8. Again, we think of David first. 
God did give David power and authority. David did win many victories over the nations. But there's also a sense in which verse 8 can't literally be true of David or any earthly king for that matter. No empire has literally encompassed the ends of the earth. It is only Jesus of whom it is said things like this, Ephesians 1. God seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age but also the age to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things. And so what we find the psalmist saying about God saying to his anointed in Psalm 2 is said of Jesus in Ephesians 1. And so God says, I love you like a son, verse 7. God says, I put the world at your feet, verse 8. And in verse 9, he says, I'm going to use you as my instrument of judgment, verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The them in verse 9 are the people from verses 1 and 2, the nations and the rulers. So God was just laughing at them while they thought they were in charge of the world. God laughed at that. But then he gives his anointed the authority to judge them, to do something about it, even breaking them to pieces with a rod of iron. You know what book of the Bible actually uses this image three times by my count? Book of Revelation, about God's anointed wielding a rod of iron to judge the nations, to judge the rebels. Revelation was originally written to suffering Christians in Asia Minor. Rome was growing more hostile to Christians and would soon ramp up its persecutions. Revelation was written to remind those Christians their God reigns. No matter what Rome does, no matter how powerful Rome seems. As the book draws to a close in in Revelation 19, it becomes obvious who wins the cosmic battle. Jesus is described in Revelation 19, and one of the things he possesses is a rod of iron with which he judges the nations. This section is about God finally exerting control over his world. His anointed king, his beloved son, is put in charge. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, in essence, he says. And at a certain point, what this real anointed king does is judges the world, and he begins with the nations and kings who plotted and raged against him. God finally asserts himself over that world, and he says, I'm going to let everyone know who's really in charge. So we come to verse 10, which is really the so what of this psalm. How should we respond? It's an invitation for the readers to take everything in about this storyline and to respond appropriately to the true king. This is verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, so the kings are addressed, and he advises them, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the rebellious kings and rulers of verse 2 are told in verse 10, sober up, be wise and be warned. Repent of your rebellion, serve the Lord with fear and trembling, submit to his yoke. Humble yourself, kiss the son, that is uh, an honorific, like kiss the ring, submit yourself to him, let him know that he is the true king, that that you listen to him. No, he has authority over all, including you. The last line of the psalm emphasizes there is no refuge from this king. There is only refuge to be found in this king. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's no hiding from him when he wields his rod of iron. The only safety is found in submitting to him. 
This psalm says you can either serve and rejoice and kiss and seek refuge in this king and be blessed. That's one option. Or rebel. Don't rejoice in him. Don't submit to him. Don't kiss him. And you'll perish. That's the other option. And there is no in-between. You will either be raging against the king, declaring, I am my own, or you will be a servant of him. There is no refuge from him, only refuge in him. We each need to be persuaded of that, this psalm says. So let me end by just nailing down exactly what I think this psalm means. What I've tried to to do as we've gone is is to show you how this fits in David's day, to show you how the early Christians used it, and then hint at how we should be thinking about it. So first of all, let's think about David. You know, the Israelites were a tiny little nation, constantly being invaded, taken captive, marched through. They needed this psalm in order to be reminded that despite all appearances to the contrary, their God reigns. If they really did serve the one true and living God, if the gods of Assyria and Babylon were counterfeits, then they could always trust God and take refuge in him. They could sleep easy at night knowing they served the judge of all mankind. And if they lived in an era in which the kings and nations were raging against God and his anointed, they could know this is a temporary thing. God is laughing, and then God at some point will stop laughing and assert himself. That's how Israel was to read this psalm. Then we have the early church. Our brethren in the first century saw this psalm as a prophecy of first the rejection of Jesus, but then a prophecy of the ultimate victory of Jesus and the judgment Jesus would enact. They said, if Jesus is Lord and King, then we ought to take refuge in him. We ought to put all of our faith and confidence in him, no matter what forces seem to be arrayed against us, no matter how big and bad Rome might seem. We know this is just a temporary era in which the world looks chaotic, in which it looks like the nations are raging successfully. But it's not forever. God's busy laughing. And then one day he'll stop laughing and he'll assert himself and his authority over the world. And so that brings us to our day. What does this mean for us? Well, we live in a time where many people are vying for power. People are attempting to have their say in how the world is run. Sometimes as Americans, we think we run the world. We think we are in charge of things. We need to remember the real king comes one day, comes back. He comes bearing a rod of iron. And only those who are taking refuge in him will be spared. This psalm humbles the kingdoms of men with the knowledge they are not in charge. But this psalm bolsters the people of God with the knowledge our God does rule, and he always does. No matter what the news of the world may seem to indicate on any given week. Think to yourself how most of our fellow citizens would answer this question. Who's in charge of the world? Right? There would be, you know, you ask a political scientist, a news anchor, they're going to say, well, they're going to talk about who's in charge of the world. Well, the power dynamics between nations. They're going to talk about alliances. They're going to talk about wars. They're going to talk about who's going to win the next election and all of that. Psalm 2 tells us any answer to the question aside from God is wrong and blasphemous. And in judgment, when God's king asserts his rule finally and completely, only those who lived as if God were king will be saved. And those who thought they ran the world will be judged. Who's really in charge of the world? Our God is. That's what Israel needed to remember. That's what the persecuted early church needed to remember. And that's what we need to remember. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him, the last line of this psalm. The only refuge to be found in judgment day is in Christ. The only way to escape the judgment of God is to be one of his people. And so the question we end with is, are you one of those people? Are you taking refuge in him? Are you living like you're one of those children? If you are not, if you've been found outside of him, if you've been saying in your life, I am my own, then you need to repent before judgment. We stand ready to help you by baptizing you into Christ, praying for you, praying with you, helping you address whatever spiritual need you have. But if you need to come take refuge in Christ, come forward now as we stand and sing. Wanderer, come to me. Henceforth, without his danger, come, Christ the shepherd's blessed. Enter the fold of safety, enter the place of rest. Lovingly, tenderly calling is he. Wanderer, wanderer, come unto me. Patiently waiting, there standing I see. Jesus, my shepherd divine. Lingering is but folly, wolves are abroad today. Seeking a sheep who's straying, seeking a lamb to slay. Jesus, a loving shepherd, all of thee now to come. Fall of safety where there is rest and room. Lovingly, tenderly calling is he. Wanderer, wanderer, come unto me. Patiently waiting, there standing I see. Jesus, my shepherd divine. Again, thank you for being here. Let's all be back for QA tonight at five. We'll worship God together at that time. We'll have a prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Yeah, well.